fun to get these things to work. And that's that's honestly what I'm chasing. I'm, I'm chasing the fun. I'm, I'm chasing the good times of running a business. Like I said, I'm in love with business. And anybody who's in love with business and anybody who's doing it better, I want to speak to them. I want to talk to them. I just just love all that stuff. It, it just makes me happy. So welcome to episode 92 of the AFT Construction Podcast. And today our guest is Michael McCurdy. And Mike is actually running three companies. You know, he has McCurdy Construction, which is his uh, general contracting company. He has his design business, Structured Cabinets and Design, and, and Noblesse of Phoenix, his cabinet division. And what's interesting about Michael's story, he's an entrepreneur at heart. This is someone who's in general contracting, design, and subcontracting. And you think of the complexity of each of these three businesses, the communication, the systems, you know, how they work through all the processes. And in speaking with him, we dove into how do you manage employees? How do you set expectations? How do you analyze each and every project to make sure you're successful and that you're better for the next one? There's so much to managing people and setting the expectations and being a good business owner. And then also understanding how to be a savant in not only the general contract, but also the subcontracting and how those two play hand in hand and how that's been a success. It's an amazing story. Michael's done an incredible job. He's here local in Phoenix. Definitely take a listen. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast, and I'm Brad Levitt, and today we have a special guest with us. We have Mike McCurdy, and he is president of McCurdy Construction, as well as president of Structures, Cabinet, and Design, and also president of Noblesse of Phoenix. So a very short title there, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> we keep it easy for the listeners, you know. Well, it's amazing. So this is interesting to me, you know. Here we are. We have you. You have three companies you're running. Uh, I know you and your wife are tremendously busy with everything. So... As an owner running three companies, you know, ownership is everything, right? How you communicate with your employees and how you build right. that operation systems, you know. So let me start with this. What do you feel makes a good owner? Good owner, I, I feel like if you're giving your employees what they need to have to do their jobs, that's, that's making a good owner. You know, a good owner is tolerant of mistakes, encourages employees um, to do better, to move along, and generally, you know, if... The company wins, everybody wins. So when you talk about, this is something I've tried to figure out from an ownership perspective is, in construction, it's high risk, right? Everything we're doing is high risk. Yeah. And you're doing construction, you're doing cabinetry, um, you know, even the representation locally of Noblesse. So when you think about that, it, at a high risk company, there's gonna be issues. Like there's no way we're gonna have a perfect project that goes to beginning to end, you know, our clients un hopefully understand that, but internally there are mistakes. And we just had an issue where one of our superintendents had directed one of our field crews to do something that was incorrect to the design. Right. Now there's a cost there. We have to absorb that because we mismanage that, right? And so how do you do that in a delicate way with your team where there is costs that affect the bottom line of McCurdy Construction, but at the same time instruct them and help them to grow? Well... Everybody knows, I mean, I, you know, McCurdy Construction, Structures, Cabinet Design, we're the easiest place to make a mistake because the owner knows that he makes like 10 mistakes a day, <laughs> you know, and as long as we're growing from them and we understand that, you know, don't, don't, don't do that one again. You know, we, we're a company, we want to do things correctly, and besides the fact that every one of our projects goes completely smoothly and there's never any mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, obviously, like you said, no project goes completely smoothly and has no mistakes. It's, it's not possible. But we just encourage them, you know, it's okay. Move on. 
don't do it again, and we're good. You know, we soak up, we soak up the cost just like you would. If it's our mistake, we want to make sure things get right. And sometimes we even do things more just to make sure that they're right. You know, we're doing renovations right now, so sometimes things have to be fixed. Yeah, they do. And it's interesting because we've, we've gone back and forth of how do we avoid those mistakes in the future? You know, it's really easy to put something down on paper as far as the schedule goes, you know, and the complications that may arise. Um, but w- those mistakes are really crucial because as you make those, you don't make them again. I mean, they better not make them again. But I know in my career, some of the biggest mistakes I've made, you know, it, it's documented. It's imprinted in my mind and moving forward, you know, I can fix that expectation or communication, make sure we don't hit the same issue. So, you know, other guests I'd have, you know, Luann Nigera, who's a podcaster, you know, in the design world, and she has a well-designed business podcast out in New Jersey. And one thing that she said when she came on, she said, look, Brad, we always do an audit, right? At the end of the project we do, she calls it an autopsy. So they actually go through what went well, what failed, what mistakes. And essentially we've incorporated something similar to that where we have our production meeting and granted, you know, Mike, if you're in all my team, I'd say, hey, Mike, you had this issue, we're gonna bring it up to the team, I'm not gonna throw you on the bus, but we're gonna address it as a right. team. So that way that mistake made, everyone understands the mistake, how do we correct that, not make it move forward. So hopefully, even though an individual made that, now as a company we can learn from it and hopefully no one else makes the same mistake in the company. Yeah, I mean, we we do our audit as we're moving along. You know, we don't sit down at the very end of a project, honestly, I'm actually kind of learning something from you right now, which, I mean, isn't that a great thing? You learn something from her, Right now, you, you you talking about that. We don't generally do like a big project review at the end, uh, whether it's McCurdy or Structures and Bless or whatever. But um, during the project, you know, we have we have a once a week meetings, uh, production meetings, and we go through the things. And it's like, okay, well, here's 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 something that we did that you know whether it's this person, this person, this person. It's a we. You know, ultimately everything's my fault, but it's a we. We didn't do this correctly, so. Now, what what went wrong? What can we correct? And generally, it comes down to planning, and something wasn't planned out correctly. Occasionally, we'll have you know somebody make a mistake where they something about a year ago. Somebody took out an entire room of tile that wasn't supposed to come out, so we had to pay for tile and insulation, all that stuff. And uh, that that was that was kind of a bummer, but things happen. And um, you know, from that one, we just said, okay, our scope wasn't super clear. You guys also didn't review the scope, and you didn't call and make you know you didn't you didn't make a call and ask. And all right, good, squashed. We know that we made a mistake. We know what happened. Let's not do it again. Let's just make sure that now we make that part of the scope a little more clear. And we also guys don't be afraid to pick the phone up and call somebody. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You know my phone's always on. I'll look it up for you. The project manager will look it up for you. It's all good. So how does that work when you start speaking about the scope of work? Are you creating all the design selections and yourself? Are you working with designers and architects? You know, how does the project take place from that organization standpoint? Uh, For us, we try and put as much as we can together before the project starts. But, um, and this is from McCurdy, we we have, I don't wanna call them in-house designers, but we we sub-design out to Structures Cabinet Design. And, Structures puts all all of all of the design elements, not necessarily the architectural stuff. We have architects that work for us as well, architects and draftsmen that work for us as well. And but we we form our own scope based on what the architects, what the designers, what they're putting together and what they're asking for. Then the designers have a spec sheet, 
so that we're ordering the right materials and things like that. I'm always amazed when I speak to business owners such as yourself, Michael, because, you know, I think about our company and we're a general contractor and, you know, the complications we have just in running AFT, right? And then I think about someone such as yourself that says, okay, we have our construction firm. We also have our design and architecture firm, right? And then we have our cabinetry install. So you're managing not just supervisors that are out there running the management, but you're also self-performing scope. So you're managing that aspect, which is different. These are hourly employees and there's a lot of training there. And now you have designers on staff that you're doing design. So it's incredibly complex. Like how do you motivate all those employees? How do you track that? How do you train them being that the scopes of work are so much different between the three parties? Even though there's overlap, they're still totally different. Right. Well, the architecture, we're not doing ourselves. We're just subbing that out to somebody, but, you know, subs. But the design, though, but the design you're doing. Yes, yes, but the design we're doing, and that's just, I mean, the designers are having fun. That's what they do. That is honestly, that's probably one of the easiest parts of it because, you know, they get somebody in the, you know, know, they get somebody in the showroom, and they're going through stuff, and this this is what they love to do. They love to pick stuff out. They love to figure things out. They love to, they love to get into somebody's head and figure out what that client wants, what that client needs to make their project beautiful. And then they love putting that stuff together in a presentation. You know, so the design part of it's easy, at least for me it is. Maybe it's not for them. Um, I'm, I'm definitely no designer, as my wife will tell me. <laughs> uh, she is a designer, and I am no designer. But uh, that's that's why I married her. <laughs> but, it's a um, good strategy. As far as, you know, as far as, as the construction part of it, just... It, it is a lot of management, and I don't think I realized how complex it was and how difficult it was up until I started a cabinet business, and it's just one thing. Just being a sub mm-hmm. is cake compared to being a general contractor. It really, really is simple. There's still problems. There's still intricacies involved in designing cabinets and designing a layout and things like that, but it, it really is easy, and, it's, and I, I don't want another general contractor. You know, People ask structures to do more. And we try and keep them separate. And we sell cabinets and we install cabinets. That's all we do. We don't do any more. As you, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't want to have two general contracting companies. Uh, no, thanks. Exactly. Me either. Yeah. I would not want to have two general contracting companies. But So it's, it's not as bad. And, that, and the companies learn from each other. There's things that I'm learning from Structure. Structure is a brand. It's like a four-year-old company. There's processes that I'm putting in place from McCurdy that I learned from Structures and vice versa. You know, so it's almost kind of like they're building each other up and growing together and learning together. And it's actually, it's actually really fun right now. So when you're looking at the design side of things, as you turn it over to Structures Design, are they uh, just designing the overall aesthetic of the home and all the intricacies that go to it? And then you're hard pricing that? Or do you have a database where they essentially know, hey, we're going to pick this cabinetry this no bless, it's going to be X dollars. I mean, do you have a working database where they have pricing that's itemized for them as they go? Or is it really open-ended where the designer is trying to design, still keep a budget even though they don't have the a, a really huge direct pulse on the pricing? Yeah, we're we're trying to keep the designers in, in line with the prices that the estimator put together. You know, we do have a database of... You know, tile is this much per square foot. This is this is your base price. This is how much we're putting in. Um, anything you go over that, you know, then we have to do a change order. So change orders are done. You know, we do initial selection change orders, and that's after after they go through design. And sometimes the client's all good with that. Sometimes the client says, "Whoa, I had a little too much fun. You know, and I got to pull back a little bit." 
and that's okay too. Everybody's got a budget. Even Bill Gates has a budget. Yeah. Oh, they all do. Trust me. Yes. And some of the the ones that could actually afford it have the the strictest budget, as we've seen. That's why they you know, have a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know. But going back to that, so it's interesting. So when you're working through design, I mean, so it sounds like if I'm interpreting this correctly, similar to us in the sense that we have a client come in and we have an overall conception or schematic of what the project will be, right? If uh-huh. it's hillside or flat loss, square footage, how many bathrooms. We, we have a general overview and then we'll create a budget or estimate, right? right? And it's itemized so that we know, hey, appliances, we have this much in the allowance, we have this much for tile, this much for countertops. And so by doing that, you can take a pulse throughout that design period and say, okay, if we have $50,000 for appliances, you know, and they're making selections, you know, and they go and pick all their appliances they love at the appliance store, and that number comes back at 65, that's a really easy conversation Okay, we had a budget of 50 at 65. Now, even though we haven't priced your framing yet or your steel or whatever it may be, we know for sure on this line you're going to be over. Right. And so that that's similar pulse happening to you that you have an estimate and the designers have a good idea of what they have allotted for countertops or finishes. Yes, we give that to them so that they know where they're supposed to be. You know, their designers, they, they know that this material or this faucet, you know, if we put in a couple thousand dollars for somebody's kitchen plumbing, you know, but the person picks out a $2,500 faucet or something like that, or, eh, that's actually not realistic. $2,500 sink, which is very realistic. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're already over. But I, I don't care. That's what I want. Okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. We just want to let you know that that is more than what we have in here for the budget. And we give that budget to, you know, the clients know what their budget is, but we also give that allowance sheet to the designers. So as, as they're going through the process, they can try and keep it in line. It's okay if somebody goes over, but that's their choice. We just, you know, we just we just try and keep that in line. I, I like people to be within their budget, not overspend, things like that, but it happens. So what's tough is you also do remodels, correct? Yes. So on the remodel side, it, it becomes really difficult because there's a lot of unknowns when you're looking at remodels. And so when you're looking at a kitchen and in your estimate you say, okay, we're going to have plumbing. I mean, we may be moving an island, you know, so we're going to have some saw cutting, you know, some underground, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of labor there. So are you breaking apart the labor to say, okay, we have, you know, $2,500 for labor and then we have $2,000 for fixtures. So then the designer's a little bit more clear on what, you know, they have to work with. Yeah. We do it according to rough and finish. So the faucet, the sink, things like that are finished. That's the stuff that the designers have an allowance on. Okay. Very honestly for rough plumbing, in most remodels or you know real renovations, I know what that's going to cost. I know how long it's going to take. I know what they charged us the last time. I know what it's going to cost to saw cut it. I know how long it's going to take to actually break the concrete out. Those are all pretty easy things to figure out. Easy things to know. It's just just manpower and labor and you know subcontracting and stuff like that. The things that are that are difficult is when you're opening things up <laughs> in a 1950s home or 1940s home and somebody did their own wiring or something like that or did their own plumbing and things are all screwy. Those are the things that you open it up and you go, okay, let's talk to the homeowner. Let's bring it up to them. Let them know what's, you know, what we just found. They already knew there was going to be some funky stuff because we told them when we did the estimate. You're in like a 70-year-old house. There's going to be some odd things that are going to be going on and we may open it up. So you you need to, you know, if your budget's 100, make sure that you've got another 20 or 30 grand kicking on top of that so we can take out the plumbing and stuff like that or take out take out the old pipes that are underground things like that those those are the things that 
that are unknowns because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Or we open it up and there's a gas line where there shouldn't be a gas line because somebody capped it off 40 years ago. And I love that you set that expectation. It's always been fascinating to me. In the commercial world, you know, I worked in commercial and it's commonplace, whereas you're breaking apart the budget and typically most commercial is a cost plus scenario, right? So they still have all their scope, you know, from dust control to barricades in the streets as they have to shut down and tie into the street. Right. I mean, whatever it may be, all the way down to finishes. But what they always do at the bottom in the soft cost, they always have, you know, the, the supervision, they have the fee, they have tax insurance, all these items, but they always specify an owner contingency or even a builder contingency which is for those unknowns, right? There's going to be unknowns in land development. There's unknowns in a remodel taking it apart. And so I've always wondered why in commercial, it's very transparent that way that we're contingency line, but in construction, a lot of times our owners aren't carrying a contingency line, even if it's not accessible to us as the builder. But as you mentioned, yeah, we have a hundred thousand dollar bid, but Hey client, you may want to have 20 or 30,000 contingency. So when we do find issues, that conversation a little bit easier and you're not saying, Hey Brad, you know, why am I having this change order? At least there's some fluff there. So mentally, it's a little bit easier to digest, you know, the cost of the project. Yeah, and very honestly, um, I'm, I'm part of some groups. Uh, one's called the Mastermind Group, and that, that gets brought up, stuff like that, the contingencies and things like that for, uh, for residential renovations or just home building, whatever it is. And that is something that I'd like to start working in. I mean, it's, it's an understood thing, mm-hmm. but almost kind of, you know what, we're just going to charge you for $5,000 worth of change orders. That's just kind of sitting there. It's your money. If we use it, we use it. If we don't, we don't. We're not trying to use it. But, and, you know, the 5000 is, is just, a, just a number I'm throwing out there. Mm-hmm. But that way, when something comes up, something small, I can just call you up and say, you know, hey, we got to put another outlet there for a code. Or, you know, they request an outlet or they request a chandelier to be put in. I don't have to keep sending them change orders and asking them for more money. They already know they have this little bit of bankroll kicking around. I, I call that getting a little more sophisticated in my in my business and my construction business and something that I I'm constantly working towards. I'm constantly working towards doing better, whether it be organization or whatever. And yeah, def, definitely something we'd like to work on, bud. I, I love to use the word sophisticated. I feel like, you know, that's something we're striving to do is become more sophisticated with our procedures and expectations and protocol. You know, because it's it's a great term, I think, as that applies to us as builders, the more sophisticated all of us are, individually and collectively, you know, the better it'll be for the, in, for the industry, right? That everyone's gonna have a clear expectation because us builders are sophisticated, you know, and that's the one thing that's really been lacking in our industry for many years. Yeah, well, it, it'd be nice if we were all sophisticated and we all just, <laughs> just you know, just, just did really, really well and tried to do really good work and tried to do everything correctly. That would bring the whole industry up. That's what I'm all about. I want to bring the industry up. I want everybody to to do well. I don't necessarily think that one person is, you know, one one company is my competition. I'm thinking of them. I want you guys to do a good job. You know, if you beat me out on a project, we'll do a good job at that project then. That makes the whole industry stronger and builds everybody up. And that's that's really what I I mean, besides paying my family's bills, I I just I love construction and I'm in love with business just in general. You know, that's a great analogy that I love construction, but I'm in love with business because that's the key portion is that many of us understand construction, right? To some extent, right? Whatever that may be. But the difficulty is, is really understanding that love for the business and how can we better the business with those systems. So when you look at that, what is the toughest part? Because you have three businesses, Michael, you and your wife, Leda do. So what is the toughest part about running a business? 
I'm going to say just really getting things systematized, you know, and kind of making things so that they're they're working the way that they're supposed to be working all the time. And um, <laughs> uh, getting getting everybody to really just do your vision. Not so much getting them to buy into your vision. I have a vision. I'm, I've, I've been described as a visionary. I can see over the mountain. I can see where I want to go. I may not always get there, but I, I, I can see past the problems that things are going to have. Um, you know, in starting a business, running a business, whatever it is. Not everybody can do that. But um, just just getting people to actually, you know what, this is where I want to go, and getting them to see that, and then more importantly, getting them to do that. Getting them to follow that path that you're putting. Not so much as getting them to do it, but getting them to do it consistently so that things work, and they work correctly, and they work every time. That, that to me, is one of the more difficult things about, a, about running a business in general. And how do you motivate all those different employees? I mean, from a, a role perspective, you and your wife are very involved in the business. Is there a delegation there on, you know, between the companies? Is there a lot of overlap, a lot of communication between the both of you? Yes. I mean, for the most part, I'm running the business aspect of both companies. Um, she is a design manager. It, I, I, I get little speckles of design thoughts and things like that that I'm allowed to shoot out there and not get shot down. Um, but... Uh, as, as far as running the businesses, for the most part, I'm doing that. I like to have ideas. Sometimes they're crazy ideas, but sometimes they work out. And as far as motivating the employees, I mean, it's just, you know what? If you support them and you're letting them do what they want to do and you're able to put them in a spot to the things that they like to do, you know, that's, that's a big thing. If somebody likes to do drywall and you're making them do demo every day, you're going to have an unmotivated employee that's going to want to take off on you. So, you know, you kind of have to figure out what people want to do. Does somebody want to be an estimator? If they want to be an estimator, cultivate that. Get that through to them. Yeah, hey, that's awesome. Let's start training you to be an estimator. If you have somebody that likes to get the whole thing together, okay, well, let's, let's, start, let's start bringing you up to be a superintendent or a project manager or something like that. I really want people to come to work and be happy. I want them to you know, you should you shouldn't you shouldn't spend a third of your life unhappy. You shouldn't be someplace and be unhappy. People that come to me and say, you know what, got this going on. I'm not happy right now. You know what? That's okay. Accept that other job. Go be happy. I don't want you. I don't want anybody here that's not happy. And also, just giving them what they need to giving them what they need in order to complete their job so they can go home feeling fulfilled every day. I'm not sure about you, but for me, sometimes when I have a bad day and it's just. I mean, for me, a bad day is just not getting the things done that I wanted to get done, or I just, you know, kind of shuffling papers around all day or something like that, not really getting it done. Employees have those days, too, where they go home and they don't feel fulfilled. If you put in a good day's work and you know you got some stuff done, nothing better. Now you can completely leave everything at work, go home, hang out with your family, have a good time, enjoy your, you know, enjoy your kids and your wife or husband, stuff like that. That's that to me is 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 a good way to get them motivated making sure that they are doing what they want to do and making sure that you're doing everything um, you can do in order to get them to do their job and be fulfilled by it and that it doesn't happen every day but my job as an owner is to support everybody on the team so that that happens so that our company can be up here and so our company can continually move up the ladder and do better yeah, that's great advice. I mean, really having clear expectations for 
your employees gives them an opportunity to to feel uh, full, right? It gives them an opportunity for, to for, to feel successful of you know what their scope yeah. of work is, which really bring, brings them um, join their work. I mean, it's just reality. And and one thing I've seen too that's been a struggle is in construction. You know, there's always things coming up. There's people working weekends, late nights. I'm trying to hit schedules. We have clients that are busy during the day. They may have their profession be at work, and then their communication is at 9 o'clock at night, right? And our team is seeing that. And what's really hard is how do you turn that off where we're still servicing the client, but at the same time still giving our team the break they need, right, to recharge those batteries and have a break from work. And it seems to be a constant struggle, and that's something I've tried to work on the expectations from the beginning is let them know that we are communicative as a team, but also be sensitive to our team's time, right? Emails and texts. If it's an yeah. emergency, yes, but if it's something that could wait till Monday morning, let's wait till Monday morning. And I flat out tell my team, you know what? Somebody texts you at 8, 9 at night. Well, A, I try not to text. We uh, we have a project management program for both companies called Co-Construct, mm-hmm. and we try and message everything through that after the project gets going. Unless somebody's got some kind of leak or something like that, or you know, we did something, we hit a pipe with a nail, and somebody's got a leak. I don't want. I honestly don't want anybody taking away from their family time in order to contact a customer or talk to a customer or something like that. I am, I am hyper, hyper vigilant and hyper, hyper sensitive to my employees. Everybody needs time to shut down. We all have to have it. If we're constantly working all the time then when we are working, we're not going to be in a good mood. And you should come to work and be in a good mood. You know, I, I uh, tell my employees, you know, when you're here and you're on the clock, smile. Be happy. Your day will go much better, trust me. Just, just be happy and smile. That's super simple what I say. But when you go home, I expect you to be home and I expect you to be present with your family. I want you to be present with your family. I don't want to call you. I'm, I'm very respectful of stuff like that. And I know that, and I learned this a long time ago, you need two days to recharge. You know, weekends are big. You need two days to recharge. You need a day to actually just rest after the work week, kind of turn into a big piece of jello and chill (laughs) out and kind of hang out and not do anything. And the next day, then you can do your errands and go shopping and, you know, get get, get some time in, get some quality time in with your family, kind of do the things you have to do. One day off to me is not enough. You've got to have your nights off 16 hours a day. I don't, I don't want people doing stuff like that. You know, we push nine, and that's, and that's about it. You need to get home to your family, and you need to chill out and relax. So I've got you good for the next day. I love that. So this is interesting. So I mean, it's not like day one you said, okay, we're going to start all three divisions, right? We're just going to go gangbuster. Or did you? Or was there a process just, in starting? You just hurt my heart a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> Honestly, starting, starting new businesses for me is really just about uh, servicing you know, McCurdy Construction, we were having problems with their cabinet companies. So one day when I couldn't get prices from a cabinet company, actually one of my estimators and called and said, hey, he won't get back to me with any cost for this project that I'm trying to bid. And I said, you know what? I'm going to open a showroom. And 30 days later, I had a showroom open. Not completely built out, but I went, I rented this, you know, I rented the suite and we'd already talked to cabinet companies and we already had our displays on order, and we're doing design and stuff like that. And we started off as McCurdy Construction doing that. And then I realized, you know what? We could be selling stuff to other contractors, and we can actually do this the way that I want to do this. I want to be able to service contractors and builders and designers and things like that. And we set our showroom up for that, you know, so we have several different workspaces. But 
I, I wanted to do it right because I didn't feel like the cabinet companies that I went to were doing it right for me. I didn't, I didn't like the fact that I was giving somebody 20 projects a year that were, you know, $150,000, you know, $180,000 worth of business a year, but they treated me like a redheaded stepchild that wasn't going to get their attention, and that, that really bothered me. So I, I wanted to do it better. I wanted to be able to service smaller builders, you know, people such as yourself. I don't consider you a small builder, but you're doing 12 projects a year. You're doing 12 huge projects a year, but you're doing 12 projects a year. That's the kind of client that I really wanted to bring in and work with, you know, work with for structures. I wanted that type of client who is doing anywhere between five to 25 projects a year or something like that. Something that wouldn't overwhelm us, but I wanted to do quality. I didn't want to be one of the big companies that was doing something for track home builders or something like that. We could never, you know, I shouldn't say we could never, but we don't want to do something like that. Mm-hmm. We want to have quality cabinets. We don't want builder line cabinets. We want cabinets that are that are nicer and very nice and, you know, for the discerning client and for the discerning builder as well. We want to bring quality. We want to do a good job, but we want to do it so that they can come into our place and feel like they can bring their client. That was a big thing for me. Feel like they can bring their client in and it's theirs. This is their showroom while they're there. We have a designer. You're making them feel good, you're making them feel important, and you're making the builder look good by doing something like that. We're not sending them off. You know, I don't, I, as McCurdy, I don't like having to send people off to different places. Okay, go look at the granite here. Go do this. Go do that. I learned how valuable a designer could be for a company. I want to say back in 2010 or 2011 or something like that when I worked with a designer um, that was working with a client, they brought us in as a GC. And it just seemed, I was like, wow, this, this, was, this was nice. Everything was picked out. They specced everything. All I had to do was come in and do the work and buy the material. And it made me happy. And from that point on, I was looking for a wife to be a designer. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, it's funny, before we get to that, I mean, what's interesting is when you start thinking about cabinetry, uh, you know, from anyone listening, I mean, cabinetry is really one of the most critical path items that we have in the building industry. Yes. And we're so dependent on cabinetry, and it's really the most crucial element because we we get to that phase of construction as you get through drywall and paint and trim, and it's time for cabinet installation. And it's so key because once that goes in, that's really the moment that so many things, the activity really begins, right? We're templating, right. doing countertops, plumbing, backsplashes, flooring. You know, everything is based on that cabinetry. Even to finish a bathroom, you have to have the vanity in. Right. And so that's why I could understand the pain point there, and most people that have successful companies, you know, there's a pain point they're solving for themselves with the customer. And then, you know, as you build on that or find that it, it, you can become very successful. So as you're starting the cabinet line, well, this is something that's very different than management than supervision than than running a GC company. So how did that come to fruition to understand how to properly design cabinetry and where to put fillers, right? And how to space them in there, you know, the, the cabinet design so it's functional for the client and that everything's seamless and ties together. And then, you know, managing installation, which is always tricky in the craftsmanship, you know, as you're installing crown and, you know, there's a lot of technical side of cabinetry that people don't understand. So how did that come or that education so quickly when starting, you know, the, the, the cabinet division? Well, quite honestly, I didn't know much about cabinets when I started the business. Sounds odd, very odd, I know. 
Well, all, I mean, you know, some from a contractor, but from no. the day to day, yeah, there's a lot to it. Yeah, but the the actual design and how to order and things like that, I, I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, but later, my wife had worked for a cabinet company, and she understood some things. It had, it had been several years since she worked for that cabinet company, but she knew how to design cabinets. She knew how to design, and quite honestly, if I I may not have done this venture if it wasn't for Leda. She encouraged it. You know, you know, she you know she gave me the light bulb. She was a light bulb as far as that goes. With that, um, I was I was just kind of the okay, let's go, let's do it. But all all those things, those were just. I mean, I I learned from every sub. I'm I'm a sponge. I'm like a little kid, not just in my sense of humor, but I'm like a little kid. <laughs> uh, but I'm like a little kid as well when it comes to just just absorbing everything. You know, so if I went out and I walked a job site with you. Everything that you told me that day, all those things would sink in, and I'd probably learn a monstrous amount of stuff from you walking a job site and looking at one of your projects or something like that. I've been doing that for the last 13 years. You know, I've been I've been just talking to subs and everything that I can learn from a sub, somebody who knows more than me. I learn stuff from the guy that's lowest on my totem pole. I try to learn everything I can from everybody that I can, and that process of cabinets was just learn, learn, learn. You know, yeah, we don't know much about it, but this seems right. This, this, this is what it should feel like. And honestly, you know, starting off, it, it, it kind of felt like, wow, I really don't know what I'm doing. And several months in, I went, what the heck was I thinking? Starting a second business? The, the, why? Why would I do that to myself? As I was seeing all the little things that I had to do that I thought because I had been in business for nine years with a construction company, I thought starting a second business would be easy. No big deal. It was not easy and it was not no big deal. Now, have I learned, you know, the next business that I start, I'm going to do that one better. And the next one after that, I'll do that one better. And I'll continually improve my businesses that I have now and also the businesses that we start in the future. Just just trying to get better at stuff as we move along. But um, And then you hire on people. You know, we hired a designer. And as they're doing projects and they're learning about things, you're learning from them. And... We just, you know, we just grew as a company. And a couple of years ago, we hired somebody who was hyper, hyper focused on cabinetry. That was that was that was their their thing that they really really knew. And I've learned a lot from her, and we've learned a lot from her. So that's it's it's just been a journey. It's it's the same thing, you know. When you first started your business, I'm sure you didn't know everything that you wanted to know about construction or about running a business, and I didn't either. But Every day, just like I want my employees to learn and not make mistakes, every day I want to bring myself up and I want to learn something and get better at it. Things are heating up and we're excited to kick off the summer with our friends at Ledge Lounger, the pioneers of in-pool furniture. Their signature chase is one of the most iconic pieces of poolside furniture you'll see in backyards or high-end resorts all over the world. Visit their Instagram and you'll know instantly what we're talking about. With material rated to withstand chlorine, saltwater, harsh outdoor environments, and withstand of up to 16,000 hours of direct sunlight, it's no wonder the most luxurious resorts trust Ledge Lounger. One of the things we love most about Ledge Lounger is the partnerships to industry professionals that can take many forms from providing inventory to partners or shipping orders directly to clients to providing design services. It doesn't matter if you're a pool or home builder, interior designer, landscape architect, or even a furniture store you will get the same nurtured, hassle-free partnership every step of the way. Ledge Lounger is proudly made in the USA and has expanded to include full collections of in-pool seating, patio furniture, and outdoor games. 
To learn more or become a dealer, visit ledgeloungers.com backslash AFT. That's ledgeloungers.com backslash AFT. Now we're super excited. Welcome one of our new sponsors to the podcast, Pella Windows. And this is even more exciting because we use Pella in so many of our projects, nearly all of them. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relations with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So, for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And now let's get back into the episode. So when you're looking at the cabinet side, I know you had mentioned I don't want to do just low-end cabinetry. I want to do something higher-end. You know, how did that come to fruition now, Noblesse? Here you are as, you know, the Phoenix rep for them. You know, how did that relationship and communication begin? Um, a, I'll, I'll call him a dear friend. I didn't know him for very long. He passed away about a year ago. Uh, but Kevin Henry, I was connected with him on LinkedIn. And we had, uh, as, as far as Noblesse goes, my search for Noblesse. I was already in the market for another cabinet line, another European cabinet line. I, I like to be different. I didn't, you know, I could have, I could have dedicated my entire showroom to just American brands, but that doesn't make us different. That that doesn't do anything for me. And I wanted something modern. I wanted something European. And also, I have fallen in love with the European look, um, not just the European look, but your European cabinets in general that are actually from Europe. So. Um, he, he posted something on LinkedIn, and it intrigued me. And I remember the quote. I won't use the quote, but I remember the quote. But uh, that just made me like, wow, what's coming? That sounds awesome. I contacted him. I didn't actually know him at the time, but I contacted him through LinkedIn. And we started kind of going back and forth and started becoming friends. And he said, hey, you know, why don't you come out to, to uh, KBiz and take a look at him? And this was seriously like three days before that. We had just had twins. <laughs> so Leda and I are scrambling to find somebody to watch twins for an entire day. And, you know, and our nine-year-old son, both of our moms came over and watched them for the day. And we went to KBIS specifically to look at Noblesse. It was the only reason we went. Um, we, so they're in back same day. They're in back the same day. Walked in, uh, talked to, uh, to a gentleman named Dino and Kevin. We hung out for a little bit. We walked around for a little bit. I mean, you know, you know KBIS. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. Uh, very much so. So much stuff. <laughs> But we went there. We were hyper-focused. And it's funny because, you know, I looked at the line. I had already researched. I had already done quite a bit of research on them to make sure that that was what I wanted to do. And after I talked to the two of them, I said, okay, sign us up. They both looked at me like, well, well, we, uh-huh. <laughs> they weren't prepared for somebody to actually say, 
Sign I'm, up. I want I the am, distributor rights. I am ready to go now. They were not expecting that. At least it didn't feel like they were expecting that. But Noblesa has been the most fabulous partner. They they include, I mean, we only have two dealerships in the entire country right now. But Noblesa is the retail arm of Nobilia. Nobilia is probably the largest cabinet manufacturer in the entire world. They put out, from their two factories, which they just built a third one, they put out 3,600 kitchens per day. Not cabinets, kitchens, entire kitchens. And they have these two giant factories, and they just opened up another one. And uh, when we met with them, they said, yeah, this one's only putting out 100 cabinets per day or 100 kitchens per day right now. You know, it's just kind of ramping up. <laughs> so that, that one's supposed to be up to like 1,500 to 1,800 or something like that as well when it's, you know, going, going full boat. But the quality that they put out is just amazing. And the way that they run their business, they're like a giant mom-and-pop business. It's, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with with the chief operating officer. He comes out here and he involves me in marketing. He involves us in marketing. He's out here looking at stuff and, you know, helping to design our new showroom that's going to be in Mesa. And it's it's just it it, it really has been amazing. I've had I've had uh, I've had relationships with other cabinet companies from Europe that gave us no support, no marketing, no nothing, and these guys are just, you know what? We're going to work together. It's not us telling you what to do. It's not us just letting you it's go a partnership. off. And it's, a, it's a partnership. It's not, it's not just letting you go off and you got to do all your own marketing and things like that. They're putting everything together so that we're all working together. We're all working to do, to actually get this product out, which is a magnificent product, to get it out to people. So the people, and, and it's an affordable project, uh, product as well. It's not, you know, it's not something, it is super high end, but they're doing so much of it that it's actually at a reasonable price as well. That's incredible. So how does that work when you start thinking about distributor rights or territories? You know, here you are to show up at, you know, a K-Biz that day and immediately, hey, we're ready to represent you, catch them off guard. And you mentioned, I think, that there's two dealers in America right now. Right. You know, so how did, you know, without probably giving away any information that may be private here, you know, what are some of the complexities from just that application to become a distributor for them here in Phoenix? Um, I mean, we had to go through an application process. You know, it's they checked our credit. They checked our uh, um, that business credit thing. I can't think of the name offhand right now. But they checked all that stuff. And I, I'm not sure how many other people were interested in Phoenix or if there were any interested. It was just something that I knew. You know what? I can see over the mountain on this one. I can see this company's not coming here to lose. Mm -hmm. They're huge. And they wouldn't be coming here unless they thought they could be successful. So I, I wanted to nail it down as quickly as possible. Now, it was seriously like a year and a half in development just to get a showroom open. You know, we didn't know anything about the product. Didn't know the, you know, we didn't know the catalog. It was a lot of back and forth. And then finally we were able to get our order put in to do it. And... I'm not sure how ready they were. I mean, we opened maybe, we opened a few months after their first one. I don't know if you know uh, Cisco Home Furnishings in California. Mm -hmm. um, they are actually the first no Noblesse dealer. They were the first one in the country, and they plan on putting Noblesse dealerships in, I believe, most of their furniture stores up and down the California coast. But uh, And actually, any place else that they have a dealership for, for Cisco. 
Now, when you're looking at, because I know you mentioned this with the catalog thing, one thing that's really important from a designer software perspective, what's really key for your designers is whether you're using like a 2020 or Pro Kitchen or something. You're using some sort of design software as you're designing the cabinetry yeah. in the kitchen. So what was the integration like or were they already prepared to get their catalog into the software you're using? That way it's a very easy transaction for the design team as well as the end user and customer. That's been kind of a mixed bag. Um, we already had the uh, the CompuSoft winner program from the last European cabinet company that we worked with, and it was really just getting the catalog downloaded into Winner, um, as we call it. And uh, I mean, they have other dealerships around the world. We're just the first. We're just, well, we're just the second one that's in the states. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a little bit difficult because there's time differences for most of the time are uh, about nine, 10 hours apart. Yeah, exactly. We had to call Germany. Yeah. Somebody who spoke Based very broken English. Yep. Super, super difficult. <laughs> so getting trained on it and things like that was a bit of uh You didn't you study know, German at ASU? I did not, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so getting getting trained on it and getting the designers trained on it, I, I don't do any design. So I've, I ha I've never even opened the program. But, you know, we trained, you know, we trained Leda, we trained Caitlin on it. Then Kate came in and we trained her on it and Jason knows it and everybody just kind of taught themselves as they were moving through it. And now we've gone gone through the hard part and now they actually have representation here in the States. So that's like fingers up, <laughs> awesome, super happy about that. And that, that should make it a lot easier for us. I mean, as far as noblesse given, given support and things like that, that's fabulous. And, uh, now that we also have support for the program and for our design of the program and pricing and things like that, it's it's even better, you know, and things are moving along. Cabinets are getting sold. Kitchens are getting sold. That's exciting. So when you look at the territory side, is there an agreement where you have jurisdiction or radius and mileage? Hey, this is our territory. We can't have a competing store. How does that work? Arizona's ours. All the state of Arizona. The entire state of Arizona's ours. And since there's no other dealerships right now, chances are if there was something in Colorado or somebody saw something in Colorado or from Texas or New Mexico or Vegas or something, there's only one other dealership, and they're in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. So they may give the, that to us, too, depending on proximity. Yeah, exactly, depending on Anytime. proximity and who, who could travel, who could not travel, things like that. That's I mean, there, there are the dealerships in the works, just nobody's actually open yet. And how do you, when the client comes in and you're representing a Blesser, Omega, you know, Waypoint, these different lines, you know, how is that structure when the client comes in through that process? Is the designer driving that? Is budget driving that? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of variables as far as the aesthetic look, cost of which cabinetry line they, they choose to go with. It's, it's a mixed bag, Brad, because uh, sometimes people are, you know what, they just, they just don't know cabinets and they don't really care. You know, they'd be as happy with a Timberlake as they would be with uh, with an Omega or the Noblesse. Professionals, people that are savvy, consumers that are savvy, contractors, builders that are savvy, they they know the little a little intricacy. Sorry, that was a hard word to say for some reason. <laughs> they know that stuff. They can see the differences in quality. They can see the differences in finishes, and they can see what what makes a good cabinet, what doesn't make a good cabinet. Some people really just don't mind. And that's that's okay. And we have cabinet lines that'll take care of that. You know, um, uh, Waypoint is a quality every man's cabinet. 
It's got some good features. You know, they have a decent amount of finishes, and they do, you know, they do a pretty good job. Um, but as, as you move up the line, the finishes, really, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, construction, it's all, it's all just, you know, six pieces of wood put together or five pieces of wood put together with a door on it. It's not, it's not brain surgery or anything like that. You're hanging the thing on the wall. You're not moving it. As long as you have good hinges on it and stuff like that, it's not going to fall apart, you know. So really, finishes, wood species, door styles, those are the things that drive the price. People come in and they may start off at something, you know, thinking they're going to have Waypoint, but they see the finishes in Omega, and Omega has some gorgeous finishes, absolutely ridiculous. And they see those finishes and they say, well, you know what? I did come in thinking that was okay, but man, do I love that finish. And that's where they'll end up. And that that's happened. We've also had people come in, you know, that were talking like they wanted something super high end and they might move down a step because they want to do their entire house in it. You know, they're doing a 6,000 square foot house full of cabinetry, which can get really expensive. And they end up moving down a line and that's okay too. You know, like I said, everybody's got a budget. Oh, they do. But that's great advice. It's great counsel because when you think about the buying experience, you know, if you're going to buy a car and you have a budget or a model on, you know, that you're thinking about, as you start seeing what else is on the lot and upgrades and options, you know, you may be willing to splurge. So what is the value for you as a showroom, you know, to put dollars in that showroom for nice vignettes, nice displays as they come in, that whole experience, you know, how does the, a great showroom, great customer service experience, great setup, great flow translate into more sales or volume or just that customer selection process? You know what? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. If, I don't think you've ever been to our place, but we have reps come in and say you guys have a really nice place, and we're always like, "Huh? Really? Oh, wow! We didn't realize that there were places." That, yeah, because it's not like you're people... touring all the competition. I'm sorry. It's not like you guys are touring all the competition, like no. competing showrooms. So you kind of have your own vision and yeah. element of what you're doing. Yeah, and we only know how to do it one way. I know how to make things nice. I know how to make things pretty. I know how to make things good, and how I feel like they should be. How I feel like when you know, when I walk into some place and I want a nice presentation. So our, our showroom is, is very thoughtfully thoughtfully done. We want workspaces where a client is comfortable. We want the displays done nicely. We want it to feel as well like home. You know, we want it to be warm and inviting. We want to have a TV sitting over there and some chairs in case the kids are there and they're bored and they want to watch cartoons. We want to make sure that when somebody comes into our showroom, they're comfortable and they can they can make good selections. They can comfortably design their home, whether it be a kitchen, a bathroom, the whole home, whatever it is. We want them to feel like they're at home, like this is their spot. Even if we have another client and they're working, we still want them to feel like, you know what, this is your designer. This person's going to be with you the entire time that you're here, whether it's two hours or four hours, whatever it is. We're not going to rush you out. You know, she doesn't have another appointment today and get it taken care of. He or she doesn't have another appointment today. We want that person to be comfortable. We want them to feel good. And when you walk into our place, and people have told us this, oh, kind of brings your shoulders down. They're more relaxed. This feels like home. This feels like this This doesn't feel like, you know, you ever been to a showroom that just has several different of the same cabinets with one countertop or different countertops right next to each other? No. We have, we have large vignettes. We have a working kitchen in our place so we can cook for people if we want to. Yeah, that, that part's super crucial. And so... Michael, I mean, where does this come from? I mean, here you are. You grew up in Long Island. On a whim, you come to Phoenix, right? You come to ASU to come to college. I mean, what's that transition in the construction? Where did that come from, your desire to be in the building industry? 
I always wanted to own my own business. Not really sure what I was going to do. Um, but, uh, well, not always, because when I was a kid, I wanted to be an airplane pilot because my dad told me they made $100,000 a year. So <laughs> that's actually what I wanted to be until I was, you know, 10 or 11, something like that, and until I found out that I couldn't fly because my eyes were bad. But uh, or I couldn't go into military because my eyes were bad, I should mm-hmm. say. So anyway, as far as that goes, my dad, he was uh, he was an electrician for the airlines, and he he could do anything. You know, he was he was like that classic dad. He's got he's got a radio alarm saw, you know, he's got a chainsaw and he's got a radio alarm saw in the, in the shop. He built our beds. He wasn't necessarily a carpenter, but Brad, he could just he could just build stuff. He could just do things. He he could just do everything. I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be able to do those things. So I grew up doing things like that with him. Not a ton of it, but enough of it that I I learned and I felt, you know, I felt like I I could operate a saw and things like that. Um, I tried to get a construction job when I was in, in college. Didn't work out because I didn't have transportation for the first year to a college. I was riding around on a bicycle, um, like most college kids do. But uh, then I got um, got into the bar business, and I did that while I was in college and after college. And when I had enough money saved, I went and bought my first place. I didn't buy that necessarily for me to live in. I bought it so I could fix up and rent. So I started fixing places up and renting them, and... That went on for six years or something like that. I did that in the late 90s. And then, unfortunately, right before the big crash, I bought my first place that I was going to flip. <laughs> and I learned some valuable lessons. But I also was able to start a business after that. I mean, we if, if we had have subbed everything out, we would have sold our place and been fine, as opposed to we did everything ourselves, and we ended up losing quite a bit of money each. It mm-hmm. was, it, it was uh, with a partner. But... At the same time, I lost money. That was experience, and that was my friends starting to ask me to do stuff because they knew that I had done that. They had seen the pictures, things like that. They knew what we were working on. We worked on it for a year and a half. It was a 1,600-square-foot house, essentially except for electrical and drywall. We tore the place down and re- re- redid everything in there with our own you know, with our own four hands, his and mine. It took us way too long, but I gained valuable experience doing that. And at some point in time, a little bit after that, I went, yeah, I don't, I don't have the money to start a construction business. And then I went, wait a minute. I've already got everything I need to start. A I've got all these tools that I bought. I've got trailers. I've got, I don't, I don't need anything else to start a construction business. My mind, my hands, and I've got tools. So that was it. I, I, I used the experience that I gained doing that home and doing, doing the, uh, you know, the fix and rents. I used that experience to get a contractor's license and... That was it. I was by myself for the first four months or something like that. And quite honestly, I got scared because people started asking me to do more stuff. I was scared to scared to hire somebody because then I'm responsible for that person. Mm-hmm. So I had a good friend of mine, and he was in construction, knew more than I did. He had actually worked for construction companies, which I never have except for my own. And uh, so I took him on as a partner. I didn't have any assets or anything like that, so it wasn't that big of a deal. And we worked together for a couple of years until things got really, really bad, and we split up because we couldn't pay each other anymore. And after that, things got good a couple of years later, and and growth. here you are now. Growth happens. True success story. And it's interesting, you know. It's I speak to people and they always say, "Hey, Brad, should I go to college? Should I spend all this money?" And it's, you know, when you think about just college, about the cost, right? We understand cost of books, tuition, living, and kids come out of school in debt, you know, 100 grand, 
fifty grand, two hundred fifty grand. I mean, these are big dollars, right? Oh yeah. That they're taking on this debt to invest in themselves, and so for your story, Michael, and I think what's important for a lot of people listening is they're trying to figure out career choices. Is that you may have made a mistake, you know, buying your first flip and get upside down underwater. There's costs involved, but if you went to college, you'd still have these costs. You're still paying it off. You're still investing in yourself, right? Chase experience, not money. And it's no different. You know, when I speak to contractors and they say, hey, Brad, how do I build my company? How do I get to the next level? Well, don't be afraid to take a loss leader. You know, don't, don't be afraid to work in a subdivision that you want to be in or build a home or a project in a prestigious area. And you may do it for less. You may pay the customer, not that we're advising anyone to pay the customer, but <laughs> if that happens just mentally, as you think about that, hey, I have a marketing tool now that I can use. I have credibility to my resume. I've built this. I've, you know, I learned a lot from it and there's a cost to it because the owner's taking a risk on me because I'm new. But at the same time, you know, I could have paid that money in college or I could pay it to start advancing my career and get a real life MBA, right? And be successful. And essentially that's what you've done. And here you are now as you've built these companies and then built the next and the next, you know, you're at an opportunity now where you understand these systems as an owner, you understand these systems and how to encourage your employees and, you know, really turn the industry in a good way, right? And what you've done, and we can't thank you enough. And so, Michael, it's just amazing what you've offered today, just speaking about how to run these companies. And, uh, you know, that that history is fascinating to me. So where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find us uh, in Tempe. We have a showroom in Tempe, Arizona, and that's on University Drive. And that's, uh, we house McCurdy Construction there, Structures Cabinet Design there, and we also house Noblesa Phoenix there. And coming in the summer, which most people don't know about this, but coming in the summer of 2021, Structures will be opening up a new showroom in Dana Park next to Ferguson's down in Mesa. So you can find us at any of those places. And uh, the websites, if you want me to list off the websites, I can. Uh, McCurdyRemodel.com, Structures Cabinet and Design, I'm sorry, StructuresCabinet.com, and NoblessaPhoenix.com. That's incredible. Well, I know that's a venture, especially right now with building costs and scheduling. Not You'll have your own business to run, and now you're building a new showroom in Mesa. So that's a lot of work to balance yeah. the two. Yeah, we've, we've got a lot to balance, but you know what? It's fun. This is – I don't feel like I'm going to work every day, Brad. And you were mentioning something about chasing experience, not money. One of my biggest I, – I, I said one of my hardest things about running a business earlier was, you know, you know what I said, but – one of my hardest things about running a business is that sometimes I forget I'm supposed to be making money at this because <laughs> I am having fun. You know, it's 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 fun for the experience. It's fun fun to try and figure things out. It's fun to get these things to work, and that's that's honestly what I'm chasing. I'm I'm chasing the fun. I'm I'm chasing the good times of running a business. Like I said, I'm in love with business, and anybody who's in love with business and anybody who's doing it better, I'm I want to speak to them. I want to talk to them. I just just love all that stuff. It, it just makes me happy. Well, that sponge mentality, the willingness to absorb, right? That's going to better each of us for our career paths and personal lives. So again, Michael, thank you so much time for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Brad. I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.